Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Faith That Works, found in the book of James. And let's turn to that book, James chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Persistent Endurance. the risk of sounding political, I'm thankful for Canada's universal health care system. My wife and I were talking about her family the other day, and she was talking about her father's oldest brother, that is her uncle. You know, she's never met him because he died as a boy. He had appendicitis, and the family didn't have the money to pay the doctor, and so he died. And in consequence, my wife's grandfather lived a life of anger towards God. You know, we're talking about poverty, and poverty disease, malnutrition, lack of access to education and health care, no opportunity for advancement, violence, sorrow, all these matters, they go hand in hand. Now, sometimes the definition of poverty has been hard to come by. You know, sometimes poverty is defined in relative terms, that is, your economic status in relationship to others in your culture. That would mean that others have access to health care, but, but you had none. Others have access to education and social advancement, but, but you have none. Now, that truly is poverty. But poverty also can be defined in absolute terms, meaning that a person doesn't have the resources to provide for clothing, shelter, and the basic needs of life. And the Bible says a lot about the responsibility of a man or woman of God to the poor. If you claim to be a Christian and have no concern to address the needs of the poor, well, your claim is suspect. Proverbs 17, verse 5 says, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. And Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Our Lord Jesus said that he had come to proclaim good news to the poor. And in Galatians 2, verse 10, after James, Peter, and John blessed Paul in, in his Gentile ministry, Paul adds, Only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. And we've begun studying the book of James. And James is writing Jewish Christians who have been dispersed and because of this have encountered a great many trials. But James has been saying that trials of various kinds, everything from persecution to reversals of fortune, are important for the long-term good of believers. Trials, James tells us, have a very positive effect in the life of the believer. They produce steadfastness, a life of faithful, persistent endurance. They produce a kind of dedication that leads to the perfecting of their faith. So what kind of trials do people face? Well, up till now in this series on James, I've spoken of persecution and reversals of fortune and illnesses and any other thing that springs up to bring hardship into our lives. But sometimes, as you and I know, sometimes people are born into hardship. I'm speaking here about poverty. And as many of you are aware, wealth and poverty tend to be generational. Wealth often ensures educational advantages and comes with a sense of expectations as to what's possible and what's not. On the other hand, poverty often comes with a lack of so many things that others take for granted. You know, in most countries in the world and throughout the vast majority of human history, People are locked into their social status. They're born into a home that suffers want, and they will die in a situation that suffers want. They've never known a moment in life where there has been anything but a lack of what they need. 
That's not a trial that lasts for a period of time. That's a a lifetime trial. Now, how are those who are poor and in Christ to think of God's kindness to them? Has God been abandoning them? In our study of James, we've been struck by the instruction that we are to consider all of our trials as a cause that will increase and enhance our eternal long-term joy. And now we come to James 1, 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Notice when speaking about the poor that James calls him the lowly brother. Now that term brother in context refers to all believers, both men and women. But the key is that they're still brothers. They belong to the family of God. And this brother who is poor, says James, ought to rejoice in his exaltation. Now, if that sounds strange, it's no stranger than verse 2, where everyone who encounters trials is to rejoice. The poor man, says James, should be saying, how rich I am. Heaven is mine. God's eternal promises have been made to me. The day is surely coming when God will redress all the injustices that I have suffered. And in contrast, the rich should say the opposite. He should say, what a wretch I am. Everything that I've worked for that gives me an advantage over the other is soon to be taken from me. My wealth is temporary. It's an illusion. Furthermore, my death is not that far away. And when James speaks this way, please notice that he sounds so much like Jesus, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And then a few verses later, in verse 24, he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. James is simply copying Jesus. He wants there to be a level playing field between rich and poor Christians. He doesn't want the rich to receive a higher place than the poor. And he will say so much more about that issue later in this letter. But here he wants to speak to the inner state of both rich and poor. Neither must think of their situation outside of what God has said. And with that, James returns to trials of various kinds. So let's read verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, verse 12 requires some thought. But before we examine this important verse, let me provide an illustration. You know, as far as I know, the story I'm about to tell you is true. It was told in a sermon by the old pastor, W.A. Criswell, regarding a man whom he knew personally. A longtime evangelist in the American South loved to hunt. He had two setters. They were hunting dogs that he kept in his own backyard. And one morning, an ornery, tiny bulldog crawled under his backyard fence where the two setters spent their days. Those two dogs decided to teach that little bulldog a lesson. They went into attack mode and they beat that little bulldog up pretty good, leaving the little dog with wounds and scurrying under the fence from where he came, where he went home licking his wounds. But would you believe it? The next morning, that little dog was back. He got beat up again and he fled again, going under the same hole in the fence. The third day, same thing, same results. The evangelist left for a revival meeting and was back home after several weeks. You know, when he got home, he asked his wife how the situation with the dogs had resolved itself. And she said, you know, honey, you just won't believe what happened. 
Every morning, same time that little bulldog came back and fought with our setters, and he lost every time. But he didn't miss a single day. And now it's come to the point when our setters hear that little bulldog snorting and wheezing down the back alley and then squeezing under the fence. They immediately start whining and running down into our basement. That little bulldog now struts around our backyard like he owns the place. You know, it's an amazing story of one unrelenting, cantankerous dog, steadfast. Look again at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Notice what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say, blessed is the man who conquers every trial. No. It doesn't say, blessed is the man who knows how to turn lemons into lemonade. It doesn't say, blessed is the man who knows how to think possibilities and knows how to innovate and make the most of every opportunity. No, I'm not saying that brilliant people who never give up are not praiseworthy. I mean, they are. And some of the greatest leaders and innovators and inventors and and entrepreneurs that we all love to talk about were men and women of both exceptional brilliance and also exceptional perseverance. And I, as do many others, love to applaud them. But that's not what our text is talking about. It's not talking about those who innovate, but those who remain steadfast, unmoved under trial. It refers to those who don't stop hoping in God when the night falls and all around them is darkness. It speaks of those who fix their eyes on the eternal rewards and never stop dreaming of what God has in store for those who love him. James is speaking about persistent endurance. The victory doesn't go to the most brilliant or the best educated or the most gifted, the best looking or the strongest. The victory goes to the most unrelentingly persistent person. Some people are absolutely brilliant, but they are quitters. And all of that brilliance amounts to nothing at all. The world is full of useless geniuses, but there are those who simply remain steadfast. It's a wonderful quality. God wants to give it to us. Back to the Bible Canada has just wrapped up another fiscal year, and we're beyond grateful for all your gifts toward our year-end target. Your generous donations have helped position this ministry for another successful year of sharing the gospel in every way imaginable. We're so excited for everything we have in store for this next year, so stay tuned. Our match campaign in June was a huge success, but we're humbled to say The amount of the pledges we received for the match campaign exceeded our expectations. Therefore, we're able to extend the campaign into July with an additional $75,000. So dollar for dollar, your gift will be matched up to an additional $75,000 in the month of July. We're so grateful for your gracious support right across Canada. So to double your impact, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. All of us know of Christians who have gone through trials and have lost their faith because of it. And why is that? Well, James will tell us the answer. This series is called Faith That Works. And one of the things that the book of James is supposed to do is to teach you and I to examine the kind of faith that you and I have. If your faith is defective, trials will destroy you. 
If your faith is genuine, trials will produce steadfastness. See, we can see that according to verse 12, if we are successful in our trials, that after we've done that, after we've stood firm, we will receive the crown of life. Now, clearly that up till now is what James has been leading to. We remain steadfast because we don't take our eyes off of the final prize. We have joy in trials because we can see that just ahead of us is the crown of life. And so it's imperative, don't you think, to ask ourselves, what is the crown of life? Is it a reward that some Christians get in heaven for having been extraordinarily faithful? Or is this crown the same thing as saying that we get eternal life? Is this the reward all Christians get or just some? In other words, does endurance get me something extra in heaven or is endurance necessary just to get to heaven? See, that's our question. And as you can see, this is a very serious question. How do we answer that? Well, the phrase crown of life is only repeated in one other place in our Bible. And that place is in Revelation 2 verse 10. It says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So just like James, the crown of life is given to people who bear up under trial. But that still doesn't answer our question. Is this crown salvation or is it a special reward perhaps given to martyrs? And the answer in Revelation is actually quite clear. And it's found in the very next verse, which describes exactly what's meant by the crown of life. So Revelation 2 verse 11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, the second death in Revelation is clearly identified later in that book as the lake of fire. In other words, hell. In other words, Revelation is warning believers that if in the middle of trial they are not faithful unto death, then they won't receive the crown of life. And here, the crown refers to the crown of eternal life. If you're not faithful, you will forfeit this crown. Instead, you'll receive the second death. That is, bearing up under persecution is a matter of heaven or hell. That's very similar to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And that also sounds very similar to the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 32 to 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So it seems reasonable then to approach James in just this way. If you endure, you will receive the crown of eternal life. Okay, sounds clear, but that leads to a second question. Are we then saying that our salvation is in doubt until we find out if we endure? I hope you see how important this is. If our salvation is in doubt, how then could anyone be assured of salvation? And does that mean that once we get saved, we won't know that we're eternally saved until we get to the end of our lives? Now, I'm going to say that this passage does not teach that. And I'm also going to say that we can indeed be sure that we have eternal life. But before I go there, let me admit that there are some Bible verses that seem to lead us to think that we might not know about our salvation. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, Paul at the end of his life says, I fought the good fight. 
I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth, or for that reason, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. So let me address this issue of eternal security in two ways. First, as we will see by the time we come to the end of James 1 verse 18, our new birth comes from God and God never fails. God is able to keep all who come to him. I mean, Jesus said that very clearly in John 6 verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. When Jesus makes you his own, he never loses you. So put it as clearly as I can, anyone who is truly born again will never, never, never be lost. Now, the second issue is this. The Bible is also overwhelmingly clear, according to Jesus in Matthew 10, 22, that only the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 10, 26 says that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There are all manner of passages of Scripture that warn us that if we fall away from the living God and do not endure to the end, we will not be saved. But in all of this, there's a promise. When we are saved in the gospel, we receive not just the power to endure, but the promise to endure. Romans 8, 38 to 39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, our salvation will not be canceled out. We are saved unto the end because, according to Hebrews, Jesus is right now praying for us that we might endure. Indeed, God uses many ways to inspire his children to endure. He warns us what will happen if we don't. He encourages us about a crown of life awaiting for us. He has appointed Jesus, our high priest, to pray for us. He has sent his Holy Spirit to convict our hearts and to bring us to grief over our faithlessness. These are the means appointed to every believer to remain faithful to the end. And I assume that whenever I see someone who claims to be a believer but does not persevere, that they were never truly saved in the first place. I mean, after all, eternal life, what is that? It's eternal life. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And Jesus, in his parable of the sower, makes it plain that in some, the seed grew in either thorny or rocky soil. And that means that former sin was never repented of. And so, from the outset, something was defective in some people's faith. All of that to say that, that perseverance is a mark of anyone who has genuine faith. People of genuine faith persevere even in great trials. So to put together all the themes of James, James is there to teach us to identify if our faith is genuine or if we have received a cheap knockoff. Are you truly born again or are you just deceiving yourself? And James will answer the question. Remember that Jesus said that many will say to him in the final day, Lord, we thought we were one of yours, and he will say, I never knew you. So as we embark upon a study of James, 
This is a very serious book. You know, it might scare you, but you will do soul searching. So let's reread verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Here then is what we learn. Trials in the life of a believer are good. So important is this theme in James that he begins verse 12 with the word blessed. It's the same word Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he begins with blessed are the poor in spirit and so on. You know, blessed simply means how fortunate is that person. This person is in a very good place. The person who remains steadfast under trial, they're in the best place possible. So trials are good. And they are good because they're brought by God. That's in verse 2. We are to count our trials as joy. God brings trials into our lives. He brings hardships. He may bring persecution or illness or financial misfortune or job loss or some failure. Well, you name it. And God's not telling you, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry that's happened. He is telling you, I actually brought that into your life, and therefore, it's good. It's good because it produces persistence. It is good because these trials lead to eternal life. When we have endured, we will receive the crown of life. Endurance builds on itself. Thank God for showing you this. John, this is an important teaching, and I I guess we have to keep it in front of us all the time because, you know, if if we're going through a difficult time or persecution, we're thinking, I'm never going to get over this or through this, should we think then that we're going to lose our salvation? Yeah, we're supposed to think exactly the opposite. And that's because in the next section, and we're going to talk about that tomorrow, I mean, James is going to say something about good gifts that come from God, and he is the one who birthed us, that is, gave us our salvation. So if God is the one who gave us eternal life, he is also the one to use these things to actually build us up. Not in the immediate. You know, Ben, we might not think it's building us up. In fact, many of us who have gone through trials, we've looked at this and sometimes we've said, I don't think I've gone through it well. And we've wondered, has it really done good in us? And I think here, Ben, we're just going to have to take God's word for it. He is indeed doing good in us, even when we can't see it. So that's why we're going to have to concentrate on God's resources and what he's actually doing when we can't see it. So take heart. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue the series, Faith That Works, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. In Jesus' parable of the sower, it's the soil that enhances the harvest. Hardened ground must be broken up. Earth riddled with stones or weeds has to be sifted. When the soil is prepared, the seed bursts into life. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the sowing of God's Word. And you can stand with us in this commitment. Your regular financial gifts make this broadcast possible. Your kindness propels the Word of God across Canada. Your prayers help prepare the soil, and your donations help plant the truth. This month, because of the generosity of a group of dedicated listeners, we've been privileged to extend our match campaign with an additional $75,000. So, double your impact, dollar for dollar, during the month of July. To do so, call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.